0: Hey everyone, it's Jackie. I hope your summer is going well. Um, We are in our final episode on body image. And today I want to talk about desire and ableism. They're both pertinent to this conversation about our bodies. um, And I have some thoughts that I'll confess are not fully formed yet. I still have a lot of study and research and seeking God's wisdom Um, about these two concepts. But I like what Oswald Chambers says. He says, if you cannot express yourself on any subject, struggle till you can. So yeah, today's conversation is a struggle because I'm still in the middle of it. And I'd like to invite you to be in the middle of it with me. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Well, it sure is. It's here. We're going to reshape our view on desire and ableism. And like I said, I want to invite you into this process because scripture says that iron sharpens iron. And I need you to do some sharpening here on my thoughts. And so I would invite you to go onto my Jackie Always Unplugged Facebook group page, um, and, and challenge me, agree, disagree, offer um, new insights, thoughts that shape this better for me. And if you are uncomfortable with doing that publicly, and I know some of you are, then feel free to send me your insights at Jackie at TheMarcellaProject.com. I really want to talk about this. I want to understand these concepts better. So I'm going to start with desire. You know, I've been thinking about how the culture in the church talks about the female body about it's worth being found in being thin, sexy, young, getting a man, having babies. But God, you know, as I've shared on several podcasts in this series, God says our bodies are about way more than that. And I believe it. In fact, I believe that if we live confidently in God's narrative, if we let that dominate our lives, well, all kinds of things will change for us. But then there's this other thing this, this thing that I want to acknowledge and balance somewhere in the middle of this, and that is wanting to be wanted, you know, longings, this word desire, being desired. And somewhere in this conversation, that has to be a part of it. Because we want our bodies. And again, I want to remind us when I talk about bodies, I I am talking about our mind, body and soul, everything that makes us who we are. Well, we want to be wanted we want to belong so i've done a little research and the word desire in the scripture it means longing or a turning towards and that meaning is seen in the very first time we see the word in Genesis 3.16. It's a Hebrew word for desire. And it's actually that Hebrew word in Genesis 3.16 is only used three, uh, two other times in scripture. So in Genesis 3.16, it says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And then we see that same Hebrew word again in the Song of Solomon in 7.10, where it says, I am my loves and his desire is for me. And then we see it again in Genesis 4, 7, which is the story about Cain and Abel, in case you don't remember. And it's where it says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And I like how one um, scholar says it. She, she kind of uh, categorizes these three usages. She says, Genesis three sixteen is a longing of woman for man. And Song of Solomon is a longing of a man for a woman. And then Genesis 4, 7, figuratively speaking, is a longing of a beast, which represents sin, to devour Cain. So that's the first time that we see this word desire and how it's used in scripture. But desire is used in all other kinds of ways in the scriptures also. Like Hosea 6.6 says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgment of God rather than burnt offerings. In Colossians 3.5, we read that we can have evil desires. And in Proverbs 11.23, it talks about how our desires of the righteous end up only good. Psalm 42.1, which is one of my favorites, says we long. It's that idea behind the word desire. We long for God like a deer longs for a stream of water. So yeah, in scripture, desire is this idea of a longing, a yearning, a seeking, a pleasure, delight, even the word craving or thirst. And I have to be honest, I think most of my Christian life Subconsciously, I have leaned towards thinking about desires as if they are bad. Something that needs to be controlled. And there's truth to that on some level, right? I mean, this is what Colossians 3.5 is addressing. You know, there's something to being healthy and mature, right? A healthy and mature person um, is self-controlled. So there there is that idea, but I think I've leaned too heavily on that side that desires are bad, and I'm starting to shift a little bit to embrace the idea that perhaps many, if not most, of our desires are God-ordered desires. Perhaps fundamentally they are longings, thirst, cravings for goodness and beauty and belonging and purpose, things that were for us in the garden when all things were good and right. So I'm wondering if, if we could try to look at people's desires, my own desires, and ask the question, fundamentally, what's the base here? What am I going after? What kind of goodness, beauty, belonging, purpose? And yes, it might be sideways right now, but is there something good at its core and a good unmet desire that I need to address? So I'm not the only one that thinks this. <laughs> you know, there are other people that think like me. Or, I think, like them, probably is more accurate. There's this guy named Kurt Thompson, who's a psychiatrist and an author of a book called The Soul of Desire. And he says that underneath all of our longings is a desire to be known. And I couldn't agree with that more. I think Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that story. He says, underneath all our longings is a desire to be known. And what's more, that this fundamental yearning manifests itself in our deep need to make things of beauty, revealing who we are to others. So he argues that desire and beauty go hand in hand. So yes, I absolutely want to acknowledge that our desires can and do go sideways. I know that better than anyone else. But I kind of agree with Kurt. I think fundamentally, perhaps our desires are good, even God ordered. I'm still noodling on that. And I I invite you to pipe in at any point and let me know what you think about that very concept, because it does change how we approach things. It does change how we address unmet desires. So why am I talking about desire in this series about body image? Well, like I said before, because I think even though we need to recognize, to identify, to recognize and reject the false narratives about our bodies, that they're supposed to be thin and sexy and young and beautiful with babies and married. I also want to acknowledge that wanting to be wanted, both physically, relationally, emotionally, socially, sexually, you know, that that is perhaps God-ordained wanting to be wanted. And that our bodies, mind, body, and soul, actually mediate those desires. I was thinking about this whole concept of desire um, in relationship to an encounter I had in a parking lot with a guy named Mark, not his real name. And Mark and I were both uh, attending a conference on shame and we were trying to figure out, we parked in the same parking lot and we were walking toward the building, trying to figure out which building hosted this particular conference. And no, the speaker was not Brene Brown. Um, And we ended up sitting next to each other at these round tables with a bunch of other men. I think I was the only woman sitting at that table. And as I was talking to Mark, it hit me. He was physically handsome. I mean, really beautiful. And I felt compelled to tell him. And so I did. I said, hey, I I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but I just wanted to say to you as a sister in Christ, you are physically beautiful. Now, mind you, (laughs) I don't go around telling all men this all the time, but I do listen to the Spirit's prompting, and I do believe wholeheartedly that one of the ways we can build up our brothers is by encouraging them when we see something beautiful in them or about them. And that, of course, includes their physical bodies, because we are, you're starting to get it, mind, body, and soul. The body matters. Now, it's interesting when I do this, and I have gotten into a practice of doing it, I find that it throws the people around me. Not... And I find this interesting because I want you to think about this women out there, you women out there. I want you to think about how often we comment on each other's appearances. In fact, I would argue that rarely do you walk into a space where there isn't a comment about your appearance. So women, we are so used to commenting on each other's appearances. And I think, um, in my opinion, we should probably get used to doing it less, but And then we have men who are inappropriately commenting on our appearances, and we shouldn't have that at all. But how often have you been in a room where you've heard one man tell another man something nice, something building up about their bodies? How often have you heard a woman tell another man that? And I know even saying it starts to make all of us feel uncomfortable because we've been over-sexualized in our culture. And our churches haven't helped because they have taught us that the sole narrative in scripture between men and women is one of danger and romance. Which, by the way, I'm going to do a whole series on brother-sister relationships, but what I want you to know is that danger-romance is not the dominant narrative in the New Testament, Paul uses the metaphor of brother and sister and everything that would have meant in antiquity more than any other words to refer to the church. He uses that terminology brothers and sisters 122 times. I think the next time he talks about us as a church is like the word ecclesia, which I think he uses 45 times. Don't quote me. I might have my statistics wrong at this point. The point is Brother-sister, not danger romance, is the prevailing narrative in the New Testament. And since scripture seems to indicate that we are not married in the new heavens and new earth, it seems like the relationship that carries forth from here into the new heavens and new earth is the brother-sister relationship, I think it wouldn't hurt us to start practicing it now, in the here and now. Yeah, whew, all of that. I have a real thought about this. All of that is one of the reasons I feel very free to say to men like this man I was sitting with, hey, you are physically beautiful. And again, the men around the table were very uncomfortable. But that man, you know what happened to that man? He welled up with tears. Yeah, he didn't even know me and he welled up with tears. And he went on to share with me that he was in the middle of a really bad divorce and that he hadn't heard a kind word in a very long time. And that, I think, is why the Spirit had prompted me, go ahead and tell him. We've all been there, right? I mean, I don't mean necessarily in the middle of a bad divorce uh, where we're relationally deprived. Some of us have been, actually. Um, But we've all been um, in, a, in an environment, in a relationship, in a space where we've needed to hear and see and experience from another, things like I like you, I choose you, I think you're beautiful, I want to be in a relationship with you. I have sat with Mary, a lot of married women who have this ache to be desired by their husbands, and I don't mean just sexually, to be desired in all kinds of ways, like choose me want to be with me. Tell me why you like me. I've heard the same ache from single friends to my aging friends who worry if they're going to become invisible because nobody thinks aging is beautiful. And I've heard it in my kids' lives and I've, I've had it in my own and I've had it in my marriage. And we've all experienced it in friendships, right? This wanting to be wanted This longing to be chosen, to belong, like we meet a new person and we like and we think afterwards, oh, I hope they invite me to hang out again. Yes, you get the point. We have all had this on some level. We all do have this on some level. And I have to ask myself, in light of this, if I start to think about this in a new framework, I have to ask, how am I doing with the God-ordered desires I see in others around me? and that I see in myself? How can I speak into them in healthy and mature and hopeful ways? Ways that perhaps help me and others not to attempt to fill them in unhealthy ways. Consider that. There's a proverb that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree, is a tree of life about that. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Where's the tree of life? First mentioned? Yes, in the story of Genesis, in the creation, garden story about you and me. And that's a whole other study. I've started to dive into that. How is desire and hope in this tree tied? And there's something to it. I haven't got it done yet. Like I said, all kinds of work to be done. But my point is, it seems to be saying that where there's dry land, when dry land is watered, life sprouts. When it's done in healthy and mature ways, when we do that in healthy and mature ways and we say, I see you, you're wanted, you're attractive, you belong, life sprouts. I think about Mark and then I think about Mary. Mary's young and and she has shared with me, on several occasions, that things in her life are going really well. They're beautiful and good. And yet, there's this intense longing that won't go away. She really longs for a person to invite her on a date, to become her partner, to be someone she can do life with. She wants to have sex. I mean, it's that simple. She actually wants her body to engage another body and have sex. She wants to have babies. And I I don't know, but I I, I don't think that the solution for her, um, for her unresolved sadness, because some of this is unresolved sadness, is to say something unhelpful like, oh, well, you know, just hang on there and God will bring you a mate in his timing. And I have heard this said over and over again in the Christian community. I remember sitting at a table with a young life leader, and she was telling a young adult woman this, that God would bring her a mate in his timing, and then she shared her own story. And I sat there a little dumbfounded because it seemed to me like she was giving this young woman a promise that I was pretty sure God doesn't give. I mean, I hate to say this, and I know this will be very... Disturbing to some of you listening, but God doesn't promise us a mate and He doesn't promise us babies. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, I think that it's normal for humans to end up connecting up with a partner and having children. Like that's been set into the DNA of humanity. But what I want us to understand is it's not a promise from the divine. And I've seen what this kind of theology, this kind of thinking um, does to women, the kind of burden it puts on them. Recently, I sat with a woman in her 50s. She's highly successful, and again, she's carrying around this deep, unresolved sadness that she never married and she never had babies. And she asked me this very painful, burdensome question and that was if I thought that God didn't allow her these things because he knew she wouldn't be good at it. Yeah, I get those kinds of questions, and they're not easy to answer. And there's a whole lot of pain involved in it. Can you hear it? And shame. And I find that awful. I think that's an awful burden on someone that I don't think Jesus put there. So you're probably wondering well, how did you answer her? Well, I mean, I told her that I thought her desires were God-ordered. I think that's important to let people know that there's no need for shame in those intense longings because they're God-ordered, and that when those God-ordered desires aren't met, there's loss. There's loss, little deaths everywhere. Um, And then I said, I think sometimes we attribute things to God that perhaps are just part of ordinary reality, right? Like, for example... It's a fact that in America, women are delaying marriage and kids for education and career. And I think that's great. But the reality of that reality is that the, um, as women age, the pool of available men shrinks, and so do our eggs. I mean, they age. That's just a physical reality. I think about men in China. Maybe that's an easier example for us to get our hands around. You know, they can buy into the idea that no one desires them or that this is God's choice for them. But the truth is the government made a one-child policy that created a huge imbalance in the number of men per women. We shouldn't probably spiritualize that or blame God for it, right? It's, It's a government policy that changed the reality of how many women were available to be married. So I think it's a delicate thing when people share their unmet desires, right? Because again, we're handling loss, we're handling death. And I do want to point them to Jesus, but even in that, I want to be careful not to over-spiritualize that because I've heard people say, well, if you'll just focus on your relationship with God, it'll just all be fine. And I'm like, no, I mean, yes, and no, I mean, yes, of course, we want to turn and lean to Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. No doubt Jesus is our greatest and final need, but often, more often than not, God meets our needs through the things he made. So it's not just God, right? I mean, even God said in Genesis 2, it's not good for man to be alone. And God was there alone with man. Think about that. This is why I'm asking myself, how am I doing with being the hands and feet of Jesus? when it comes to others' unmet desires? Am I verbally affirming them? Am I including them? Am I communicating? Am I seeing them? Am I saying to them, you belong. You're beautiful. And when I think about that, I have to confess, I think I fall way short. I'm trying. I'm trying to reframe it and rethink about it. And if I've missed it in you, I'm sorry. I'll try to do better. So I'm going to take a break before we move on. And before we move on, may I just say, Lord Jesus, be with us and comfort us. Well, welcome back. I'm moving on to some thoughts I have about ableism. And if you don't know what that is, welcome to the club, because I didn't either until my friend Renee said, hey, if you're going to be doing stuff on body image, I highly recommend you read this book called Sitting Pretty, The View from My Ordinary, Resilient, Disabled Body by Rebecca Tossing. And I have no idea if I said her last name right. It's T-A-U-S-S-I-G. That's what Renee told me to do. And I did it. Rebecca um, has her PhD in creative nonfiction and disability studies. She's an author, speaker, teacher, and she's been in a wheelchair since her early childhood. And she defines ableism as this. The process of favoring, fetishizing, and building the world around a mostly imagined, idealized body while discriminating against those bodies perceived to move, see, Hear, process, operate, look, or need differently from that vision. She goes on to say that ableism pushes assumptions like some bodies, minds, modes are inherently and always preferable to others. For example, hearing and speaking is always better than deafness and signing. Each of us has a whole unmarred, perfect body that we were meant to have. The paralyzed, autistic, deaf version is just a sadder, lesser version of the original intent. This tenet is wrapped up in narratives of fat, aging, gender-conforming bodies, too. The worth of the body is measured by its capacity for work and or longevity of life it's able to sustain. Bodies are products. Scars, breaks, and changes in function make that product less valuable. Dependence is inferior to independence. Only some bodies require help, and those bodies are a burden. And on and on and on she went. So if you find yourself, she keeps saying, if you find yourself noodling along with any of these ableist beliefs, that makes sense. They've been a part of our daily diet since infancy. They've made us terrified of, again, sagging skin and stretch marks. They've turned us into working machines who regularly abuse our bodies to demonstrate our value. Sleepless, work harder, always. They've made us ashamed to ask for help, to take medicine, to use mobility aids. They stifle our capacity to imagine other ways of being in the world. In order to be okay, we must always strive to be the ideal human Young, smooth, tight, fit, radiant, spry, boundless, stopless, independent. Because if we start to spill out of that tiny little mold, what will it mean? Who will we be? Whew, there's a lot there for us to just pause and ponder about. I would really recommend you read her book. It's well-written, and her concepts force us to revisit our understandings of our bodies. She shares a lot of insight, personal stories in her book that um, helped me understand what it must be like for a disabled person in this culture. She tells a story of going to a party in an old building in New York City and how she rolled in her wheelchair down the narrow hallway, passed by the bathroom, took note, oops, won't be having any mojitos tonight because I cannot pee in that bathroom, it's way too small. Now, I pee a lot, but I have, n- and I always take note of where the bathrooms are. It's like one of the first things I do when I walk into a place. But I've never had to think to myself, oh, I can't drink anything tonight, whether that be water or wine, because I'm not going to be able to fit into the bathroom. At that same party, she shared about stories about, um, that all the women were telling about men catcalling. And the assumption in the room was that every woman had shared that experience, but Rebecca had not. And it made her wonder if she belonged. Like, did she fit into the standard female American experience? She shared how she battled constant pain. And when she got her first full-time job, um, the expectation was to work like 40, 50, 60 hours a week. But her body didn't comply. Anybody ever have that happen? Where your body just didn't comply? I know I have. I mean... I haven't struggled in the same light as Rebecca, but I have struggled with chronic pain. And let me tell you, pain does a number on you. In my 30s, I broke two bones on my back. And I wish I had this really great story about how it happened, but I don't. The bottom line is I moved some furniture and that was that. And so for years, I walked around in pain. I mean, many, many times I would show up in meetings with a heating pad just to be able to handle sitting in a chair. Um, I spend a lot of time doing my work laying down on the couch. And one of the things we learn from our bodies, being this embodied person, is that we're not God. Because unlike God, we have limitations. And our bodies mediate that. At one time or another, we all have to face it. Rebecca shared how she finally got her first job, her adult full-time job. She was so excited because she really thought she made it. And she says this, The thing she thought she'd never be able to do, she was finally doing. Before this moment, she didn't know how good it would feel to fit into the standard ableist equation of worth, which is hours plus production plus wages equals value. This equation is loud and powerful and everywhere. Those who don't work as many hours, who don't produce as much, whatever that means, whose wages are lower or gasp, rely on others to survive, we categorize them as a drain or a burden. This ableist model tells us that the human body is a work machine whose value is determined by its production, like a toaster that can toast six slices of bread instead of the usual two. The more you do, the more hours of overwork, overtime you work, the less you sleep you get in, the more duties you fulfill, the faster you get the work done, the less help you require, the more you're worth. Anybody in here shaking your head just about now going, ah, oh, never even thought about that, but but that is somewhat accurate, isn't it? <laughs> she goes on to give this example, and I can relate to this example, and I bet many of you can too. She shared how she was um, at a at a conference where there was this panel featuring the voices of young women who'd already garnered notable success in their field, chef, lawyer, someone in the marketing world, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And a question from the audience was posed to the women on the panel. How do you manage your work-life balance? That's a question we're all asking, isn't it? Especially women who seem to be doing it all. We wonder how on earth are they doing it? And of course, that's what the woman in the audience wanted to know. How are these highly successful women managing it all? And then she writes, no one wanted the microphone. Reluctantly, one of them said, I'm not really the best person to speak to this. I haven't taken a day off in 11 years. And everyone laughed, and she passed the mic to another woman. And her response was similar. Work kind of is my life, she said almost apologetically. A third woman was the first to even offer a tip. I find exercise is really important, even if it means getting up at at 4 in the morning to spend an hour at the gym before the rest of the family wakes up. It's worth it. And then Rebecca goes on to say, I sat in the audience stunned that these were the only responses provided. Really, that's it? Let's all just giggle about the impossibility of having both a career and a body with limits? Each woman on the panel presented themselves as living bodies with endless resources, and they were there to model success from that position. How many women listening in the, congreg- in the, in the audience had bodies that could replicate that model? How many could sustain that approach for 10 years? We live in a world that rewards women who push themselves beyond their maximum capacity, and not a single woman alive can maintain that push indefinitely. And that, that spoke to me. That spoke to my female embodied experience. Because figuratively speaking, I'm one of those women on that panel. I have excelled like that in my vocation And for 10 years, I was on a speed train. Um, I held a full-time job while getting a doctorate, parenting three kids, one of which was a very troubled child, keeping a home, trying to stay married. I used to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and go running so I could be back in the house to make the kids breakfast. And I probably should add, there's a huge pressure to being a pastor. And then add to that a female pastor. I used to say that Steve and I were like triage pastors, first one on call. If somebody's partner was cheating, a kid got killed, a woman was being abused, I did a lot of trauma work and I carried it in my body. And I did that for 10 years. And twice during that time, I was rushed to the hospital because my blood pressure shot up to stroke levels. There's a book aptly titled The Book Keeps the Score. And I'm here to say, it sure does. And I remember the doctor telling me at the time, I don't know what you're doing, but if you don't change things, you're going to die. I have watched my younger sister, who is 13 years younger than me, doing what I did at her age. And I have watched many of you doing the same thing. And I got to tell you, I am in your corner right now cheering you on because there is a season in our life where we should be saying to each other, run, sister, run, right? This, this idea of running as fast as you can to win the prize. And there are seasons in which we get to do that. And I, if that's you and, and you know who you are out there, I'm in your corner. I'm saying you go girl, go for the prize. But I also hope it, hope at times like, um, that I'm reminding you to listen, to listen to your body. Because it's telling you things, and you'd be wise to listen. And I wish someone had told me that 13 years ago. I wish they had taught me that. What does it look like to listen to your body? But here's the thing. I'm I'm not at that stage anymore. I'm not in that season of my life anymore. I'm 55. And metaphorically speaking, I feel like I have climbed my share of Mount Rushmore's, and I just don't really want to climb anymore. I just don't want to run 150 miles per hour anymore. Um, and I love how Rebecca describes it. She says, every single woman is subject to the demands, uncertainties, and limitations of her body. A body that strains under the forces of gravity and time, that wrinkles and breaks down, swells and sa- sags, sages, sages ages, yeah, I don't know, whatever, accumulates pain and injury, many of our bodies are literally torn by giving birth, transformed into food through lactation, and subject to the roller coaster unpredictability of menstruation, menopause, and hormone therapy, well, I can give her an amen to that one, the most consistent, most universal, most shared experience in having a body is that they all change, and if you live long enough, they all start to slow, forget, fracture, Ignore orders and revolt. And I've noodled on this concept of adult work um, ableism theory that we have in our culture, this idea of what it looks like to, to be worthy through work with your bodies. And as I have said, you know, how does that work when you start to slow and you start to forget and you go through menopause? And quite frankly, you just don't have the same drive to climb those same mountains you did when you were younger. Some of what she's talking about is resonating with my life, even though I'm not disabled. And this is where I have to tell you about God and the book of Acts. And I'm getting close to being done. So just hang on here. But it's important that we talk about this part. Because one morning, I was doing that pray-as-you-go thing, and this guy reads the scripture, and that morning, it was Acts chapter 13, 1 through 4, which is the story where Paul and Barnabas are commissioned to go out and preach the good news to the Gentiles. And after reading the scripture, the man prompted us to listen, to pray, and ask the spirit, God, what are you calling us to? And so I did that. Got quiet. Lord, what are you calling me to? And I heard the spirit say, play. Yeah, the word play, P-L-A-Y, and I thought, well, that can't be right, but I wrote it down in my journal, and then the man read the scripture through again, and, and then he told us to do the same prompt again. God, what are you calling me to? And so I did. I got quiet, and I waited to hear, and again, I heard the word play. Well, now I'm frustrated, and I start to argue with God about what God said, literally. I start telling him, look, God, in the passage, in case you're not aware of what this passage means, in this passage, Paul and Barnabas are doing purposeful work, in, you know, important stuff like telling people about Jesus. They're not playing. Yes, I'm kind of chuckling at myself because I am interpreting the passage for God. Kind of funny now, but I was really kind of serious then. What do you mean by play? I don't play. I grew up working, not playing. Since I was a little girl, I have worked on a farm. And I like work, always have. I'm grateful that I'm able to do the work that I love in my adult life. Play? What is play? Okay, back to Acts. The guy reads the scripture again. I pray again. A third time I ask God, what do you want me to do? Because surely I did not hear him correctly the first two times. This time, his response is a little longer. He says, play and I want to know why that's so hard for you. And then I got really quiet, and that was that. Play, and I want to know why that is so hard for you. This week, Brene Brown posted a picture with a caption that says, it takes courage to say yes to rest and to play in a culture where exhaustion is seen as a status symbol. And that's all it took for me to know for sure that God was indeed telling me what he wants me to do, and that's play. So, yeah, I've got some more thinking to do about ableism and thinking about where my body is at the age of 55, mind, body, and soul, and why I find it so hard to play. So, thanks for listening for noodling and letting me noodle around what's going on in my brain. It's not fully formulated yet, and I, I invite you to help me. Iron Sharpen Iron. You can go to the Facebook page, email me at Jackie at the Marcella Project. And if you found this podcast helpful, I'd appreciate it if you'd pass it on to a friend that would need it. Or if you haven't already subscribed to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, would you do that for me? That would be very helpful. And then finally this. I'm taking the next month off. Steve and I are going to Mexico, the mountains of Mexico. Steve has always wanted to learn another language, and so we're going. And we're going to spend the mornings in Spanish classes. And I got to tell you, I could use your prayers, because I can barely speak English, let alone learn another language. So this is really kind of risky and vulnerable for me. I'm serious. So what that means is while I'm there, I'm going to take time off from producing new podcasts. And instead, I'm going to repurpose some of the most popular ones we've had. I know for some of you, you've joined us midstream. And so this will be new for you. And that would be great. And for those of you who've already heard it, maybe you're at a different season in your life. And the spirit has something new to say through them. So I want to say thanks for supporting my work. I am so grateful for you. Thank you for letting me noodle. Thank you for noodling with me. And for now, adios, amigos, amigos, amigas, and amigos. I'm learning. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.